1: Welcome back. As we head into hour two, it is a uh, delight and privilege to bring back to the uh, show John Tierney. He's a contributing editor at City Journal. His most recent book, "The Power of Bad: How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It," he had a piece uh, in uh, City Journal, approximately zero, uh, which the subtitle of which is "Masks Make No Difference in Reducing the Spread of COVID," according to an extensive new review by Cochrane, the gold standard for Evaluating Health Interventions. John, thanks for doing this, and welcome back to the Airwaves of Phoenix, sir.
2: Thanks, uh, thanks for inviting me back, Seth. Always great to be on your show. Well, thank
1: <laughs> you. I, You know, I am just sitting here um, gobsmacked with what seems to be a flood of information that's been coming out over the past, really two weeks, if you will, uh, from these highly credible and respected sources. Uh, for example, in the last couple of weeks we've not only learned from the Cochrane review about the mask inefficacy uh, the story about the lab leak which had dominated the news for the past forty eight hours or so and of course uh, last week uh, the story on natural immunity being as good or better than vaccinated immunity and it just it all leads to something I saw. Professor Dr. Marty McCary saying in Congress uh, testifying to in Congress today that it's turning out that the greatest spreader of misinformation about COVID was the U.S. government. I, d- I don't know if you would you would, you would agree with that, but I do want to talk to you about your mask piece specifically in a moment.
2: Uh, uh, I'd very much agree with that. Although the mainstream media, I would say, gave the government a good run for its money as far as spreading disinformation. I mean, practically everything we were told about it was wrong, um, and you know. Uh, as you say, Seth? There's been all this information coming out lately about this. Well, I, and, fair enough. But,
1: I, I, that needs to be qualified. Yes, you and I were saying these things two years ago, but from at least respect, you know, credible <laughs> elite elite institutions, and maybe okay. Go right. Sorry, right. to interrupt,
2: but yeah. No, no, but 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 the, you know, the thing is that before the pandemic began, and I've written about this at City Journal, yep. the Wall Street Journal, and other places. There was, you know, experts had reviewed this evidence. There was a lot of evidence on masks before the pandemic. There was evidence, you know, and, in, in, you know, the world's leading authorities had looked at, at, at what we should do and drawn up plans for what we do if a bad pandemic hits. And right. they, and the CDC and other national health agencies. Their plan was, even if this pandemic were as bad as the Spanish flu of 1918, Mm -hmm. even if that happened, we shouldn't lock down, we shouldn't close schools, we shouldn't make the public wear masks, because there was no evidence that that these measures would work, and there was ample evidence that this would be devastating. You know, there'd be all these harmful side effects. I mean, if a drug company had done this, and said, you know, we've got this totally unproven treatment that we'd like to introduce with fatal side effects, and then did it, and then kept doing it, even as the evidence of the mistake piled up. You know, those executives would be, the company would be bankrupt, they'd be sued out of existence, and probably the executives would be facing criminal charges. And yet, this just went on the whole pandemic. And, you know, after this latest review of masks came out, uh, the, uh, the CDC director, uh, Dr. Walensky goes before Congress and they said, well, what is this review? You know, what's your reaction going to be? to And she said, oh, our, our guidance doesn't change. Why should they pay attention to scientific evidence? It's just, you know, I mean, it, it's just awful, especially considering what the CDC was doing during the pandemic. They were just promoting this absolute junk science. You know, they decided for political reasons, for whatever, you know, that, you know, uh, that mass, uh, we need to wear masks because, you know, uh, it looked as if we were doing something. It gave politicians a chance. You know, Ron DeSantis said, you know, they want you to cover your face uh, so they can cover their ass. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was right. Um, and so, but the CDC then it would just seize on any little, you know, anecdotal study to claim the masks work while they ignored all the, you know, the good evidence, the, the randomized clinical trials before the pandemic. And as, you know, showing that masks didn't work against flu and colds, and then, as the Cochrane Review shows, you, you know, they, they included those previous trials plus the trials during the pandemic. And they, it was the same result. The mass made no difference. This,
1: th- there's a lot that emanates from everything you just said, Mr. Tierney. Uh, John, if I might. Um, yes. a- thank you. And, 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 and it leads me before I get to much of it um, to, to think this early on, uh, February and maybe even into March, um uh, in twenty twenty, Anthony Fauci was asked famously about the need to wear masks and he said no. He said they won't help. Um uh, in one interview he even said they might even cause a little damage that you aren't thinking about because of, of of the particulates that it could put up close to your to your face. And I think I think he would he was I mean this this guy was no slouch. I think he was basing that early statement on all the research you're talking about. I think the lie came later. I think he was telling the truth in those early interviews.
2: Exactly. And he also told it, you know, there was an email that came out where very early in the pandemic, a colleague from the Midwest was flying to Washington to, and and she wrote to him and said, you know, should I wear a mask on the, on the plane? She meant a surgical mask. And he said, no, those masks you buy in a drugstore are not going to do any good. You know, so he was citing You know basically what was the you know the uh, the best known science then and yet he just changed his tune and went with the you know political wins once you know someone claimed it worked then you know the once that became the policy then nobody wanted to question it and you know i wrote you know i mean i wrote about this during the pandemic and i did uh, you know i did a piece about the harms of masks and there are dozens of peer-reviewed studies showing You know, you know, problems socially. You know, for children, especially for people with disabilities, but for everyone. You know, there's a this thing called mask-induced exhaustion syndrome. That's why you know occupational you know safety agencies they mandate that workers can't wear masks for more than an hour or two without you know it's just not good for you. And I wrote an article about that, and Facebook labeled it partly false. And everything I cited in it was you know peer-reviewed science. And they just had this left-wing group that, you know, that, that said, no, 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 the American Academy of Pediatrics says they says there's no harm from it. And that's this, you know, left-wing group that, you know, that actually backed the recommendation to mask toddlers. I mean, you know, the United States was, you know, the, I think the only country in the world uh, that I know of that, that was masking kids. The World Health Organization advised don't mask kids under five, the European Union, the don't mask students under 12. And yet we're, you know, we're out there telling, you know, parents to mask their two-year-olds. I mean, it's just terrible. It's child abuse what we did. It,
1: it is child abuse, and it might be, um, it might be human rights abuse. My friend, uh, you may or may not know, he, he was my expert because he's my friend, and my doctor, and local here, a doctor Zudi Jasser. He was saying, you know, yeah. up until COVID. Uh, the push in a lot of the Middle Eastern countries from a lot of the Western countries was was to be opposed to face coverings because it was dehumanizing. Never mind all the other social <laughs> and, and, and fallout you you were mentioning. Not, never mind all the other medical fallout you were mentioning. But it was yeah. a dehumanizing thing. And your colleague had a great line on it too early on, um, Heather Macdonald, when she said, "I I just refuse to be a walking." billboard for panic and ill health. I mean, it broadcasts to your fellow community members that we are all sick or that we live in a sick society. And I think there was an investment um, either by the mainstream media or the government or elements of the governments to instantiate that attitude. That's my best guess. I can't understand for the life of me why else they would be pushing this so much.
2: Right. uh, It's a bizarre thing. I mean, one reason there's one factor that's been pointed out, that, and you see this in environmentalism, too, that there's this, you know, you declare a crisis, and you get attention, you get funding, you get media coverage mm-hmm. By, mm-hmm. by hyping the danger. And then you propose a solution that involves some pain and suffering. It's basically like doing penance for sins. You know, you have to do some ritual of atonement. And people instinctively kind of feel, well, if I'm suffering this much, I must be doing something. Right. And, I think, and so environmentalists are always proposing these really, you know, let's get rid of gas stoves, let's get rid of cars, let's not eat meat, you know, all these things that involve suffering, and they don't do, and they don't advocate sensible things that would actually accomplish something that don't involve pain. So there's, you know, there's that appeal of it. And, and, and I think people, and I did a previous piece about you know, this, that America basically went through the equivalent of a fraternity hazing. Mm-hmm. You know, that you all had to follow, you had to like meet pledges, you had to follow, you had to wash your hands and mm-hmm. sing happy birthday and wear a mask. And when people go through a hazing, they're, they're really interesting social science experiments on this. They tend to believe afterwards that the reward was worth it, even when it's a worthless reward. That's you know, that you tell yourself, I, I I didn't do all that for nothing. And I think that's where we are now with you know, people don't want to admit, God, I, I I put masks on my toddlers, I did all this stuff, and it was all for nothing. Um, and certainly, we see no apologies from, you know, the officials who did it from the mainstream media, um, you know, for all the damage that was done. I mean, I think the lockdowns and the other measures are the biggest mistake that's ever been made in peacetime. Except I agree with you.
1: I agree with you with, with social and medical and psychiatric fallout and downwash that's going to take decades to overcome. Let me take a quick commercial break, and we'll come back on some of that. John Tierney is our guest, contributing editor of City Journal, former science columnist for The New York Times, among many other uh, accomplishments, his piece, Approximately Zero, in City Journal right now, and his most recent book, The Power of Bad How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It. He and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. John Tierney is our guest. He's a contributing editor at City Journal and a journalist uh, in his, throughout his career through many uh, many magazines of of science uh, and physical sciences, from Discovery to a columnist for the Science columnist at the New York Times. His most recent book, "The Power of Bad: How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It." In the City Journal, he writes uh, the most his most recent piece, "Approximately Zero Masks." make no difference. John, that was an interesting point you were making about uh, people feeling that they have to um, do something or they feel that they have to deprive themselves of something in any given crisis. Um, What what seems to have been different about this one is that it wasn't just something people did and felt good for themselves uh, about. It was something that they had to I I think the word weaponized is overused, but they had to use this tool, masking and perhaps other mitigation efforts, supports of shutdowns, lockdowns and congregate settings. They had they they, they used it to shame and, and almost as if there was a delight in taking a shame to other people, almost a lording over that you were um, not necessarily just a superior person, but an enlightened person. Um, And that those who were looking to the kinds of studies you were talking about, those that were actually kind of looking through the data. Uh, that was available and and showing what the real nature of this virus was and who it was affecting and how it would uh, be spread they were they were they were identified as the Neanderthals, the idiots there were even proposals um, by serious and smart people that they should be triaged last if they ever got sick and needed to go to the hospital I mean there was this kind of very, very odd division within the American people in a country that wasn't exactly known for its unification at the time this came. This was a very odd aspect of it, too, wasn't it?
2: It it certainly was. I I mean, part of it is You know, that it was exploited just for political purposes. You know, our elites are very polarized. now. People aren't that polarized, but the elites are polarized. You know, and if you watch cable news, you see, you know, one side screaming at the other all the time. And this quickly became, you know, the mask became the MAGA hat for the left, you know, showing you this. And there was a way to... You know, all those awful people on the other side don't do it. So there there was that, that it, it just became a tribal marking that we do this. But, but but as you say, there also was this sort of delight in yeah. shaming yeah. people. Yeah. And it's a really ugly side of progressivism. Yeah. I mean, a lot of, you know, progressives, they mean well, they want to help people. But there has been from the beginning of progressivism in the early 20th century, there was, there's been this belief that we want expert social engineers, we're going to use science to you know, to, to create a new utopia to, to better society. And we have to, and they always want to, we want to dispense with politics. We want to have these independent experts in the government telling everyone what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there's kind of, you know, as Jonah Goldberg has pointed out, you, you know, the line between, Progressivism and fascism—it's kind of, a, it's you know, it's a blurry line. Yeah, sure. You know, they, they the early progressives admired a lot of the stuff that Mussolini did, right. um, and and so there's always been that tendency that we know best, that we and that we wanted, and this it attracts people who, I mean, some people do this out of you know they they genuinely want to help you know do what they think is better for everyone, and it just attracts. People who love power and love bossing other people around. And it rewards, you know, in a system like this, rewards people like Fauci. He's this veteran bureaucrat who knows. And during the pandemic, he and Deborah Burks and Robert Redfield. um uh, I've written about this, but Scott Atlas describes it in his book. There were these three veteran bureaucrats who who knew each other from the AIDS crisis where they basically you know did a terrible job. they scared people that AIDS was going to become a heterosexual sure. breakout, and they worked on a vaccine that never that never worked out and but they they were great bureaucrats who just kept rising up the ranks despite their failures and they and they united during this, and they all agreed not to contradict each other. They, they basically took over the White House Corona Task Force because nobody else was, except Scott Atlas, um, was willing to take them on. They intimidated Mike Pence, who let them, you know, run over him. And so, and you know, and they were people who were very good at wielding power. I mean, mm-hmm. Burks wrote a book afterwards bragging how they had basically lied to Trump and hidden this stuff that they were— always wanted to do long lockdowns, but then they just kind of went behind his back to do it. So there was always, a, you know, this element of people who like telling other people what to do, who like power. And, you know, what's scary is there are people now, progressives, saying, well, the you know, the COVID response is a blueprint for how we deal with right. climate change. right.
1: Or some and, other and, crisis that they come up with. Uh, yeah. right.
2: right. Well, climate change is the perfect one yeah. because the climate's always changing. Yeah. There's always bad weather somewhere. Right. And it, you can use it as an excuse to regulate any aspect of human life.
1: Certainly. You know? Certainly. So Especially, it's, it's
2: yeah. just all this power. they get. I mean, you know, Fauci said early in the pandemic when the Chinese lockdown, he said, he said in one interview, "Oh, I don't think we could do that in America. They'd never stand for it. And but we did. And that's a scary thing. And they're hoping they can do that again with climate change.
1: Something very telling was said to me uh, or I took to be very telling when uh, Joe Biden the first time and then repeatedly and doubling down on it as president said it was your patriotic duty to wear a mask. Something very odd about that construction, as he would, by the way, wave it and wave it. You know, wave it around and flail it and set it down and do everything against the CDC's <laughs> instructions on how to use a mask. But he said it was your patriotic duty. I, I thought that was unforgivable.
2: I agree. That, I mean, this whole idea that it's your duty to do all these things for the common good, when you, when, when what they're really saying is is your duty to follow, right. to, to obey my orders, right. they, they respect my authority, even if it makes no sense. Right. Right. Um, you know you must do what i say and i mean no one had ever taken away all these liberties before right. you can't go to church right. you can't leave your home That's right it's incredible what we did and i i just you know and i i i i hope the republicans in congress now can can generate you know something with their investigation but i think it's going to take a new republican president you know like ron DeSantis, running on his COVID record to really bring this stuff to light and to make us not repeat these mistakes the next time. Totally
1: agree with you, because there's already settling in an invincible ignorance amongst many who are following these studies, you know, saying, well, these studies in the Cochrane Review, they're lying, or, of course, masks work. So there's that part. um, You might call them the dead enders. I don't know what you want to call them. Invincible ignorance. Denialists would be their term (laughs) Denialists, I suppose. There's that, and then there's the issue of whether and how spread out these stories will be disseminated. And so I think you're right. I think it's going to take Um, A powerful megaphone. Ron's probably Ron DeSantis. Governor DeSantis is probably amongst those who could do it. There's a few others, um, it seems to me. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Meantime, I want to thank you for being so good on this early on. And one of the few. Um, There weren't a lot early on. I remember you could have put us in a phone booth. You really could have. And uh, and we took the hits for it. But uh, proudly so and proud to know you and work with you on this stuff. John, really appreciate your time and your
2: brain. Thank you, Seth, and, and I salute you for your work on this. Okay. You were in there early on in the trenches. Well, Thanks.
1: God bless you. The truth is it wasn't hard to be. It just wasn't hard to be. John Tierney has been our guest. He, of course, is, uh, is over at the City Journal where he is a contributing editor, city-journal.org, some of the smartest stuff you'll ever read over there, and his most recent book, The Power of Bad, How the Negativity Effect Rules Us. And how we can rule it. That's a big subject of the whole COVID experience too. this investment in making everything seem bad here. Everything seemed to suck here. There was an investment in that long line of leftist and progressive thinking involved there, too. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Seth Liebson Show. It is a pleasure to bring back as well, dear friend, uh, new friend, Owen Anderson, Professor Anderson, uh, professor at the School of Humanities at ASU. We got to know him. Uh, gosh, this friendship was kind of forged by, uh, pardon the pun, fire, if you will, <laughs> Professor Anderson. It just uh, took place over the co- cobbled together over the last month or so. Uh, all em- emanating and stemming from the attempt to uh, shut down uh, the invitation to Dennis Prager to speak at ASU. You were one of three, total of three faculty members that stood up to the uh, Marxist professors who wanted to uh, silence and shut down that event. And a few things have happened along the way ever since. Uh, to remind the audience, uh, at one point it was uh, communicated to you, uh, that uh, any further communications you have with the public need to be cleared through the comms department or the Com- communications office at ASU. Give us an update on on how how all that has gone and since and where it's going now.
3: Yeah, well, thanks again for having me on the show. You bet. I'm very excited to be a friend of the show. Thank you. And uh, yeah, I have to say right right from the beginning, I, my views do not represent ASU. I'm not a, a spokesperson for ASU. I'm representing my private opinions, and that's because uh, what happened was. I had been told by my dean to to not speak to the media until I got approval. And then I was called in from the director of my school to be questioned about what I was saying. Mm-hmm. And because of that, I had FIRE write them a letter saying that's just not appropriate. People have the right to speak to the media as private citizens. And so the, the provost of ASU did respond to FIRE's email and said uh, it was all miscommunication. Professor Anderson can speak to the media as a private citizen, but we do ask that uh, ASU employees make it known they're not speaking for ASU or representing ASU. Um, so in one way, that sounds, okay, good. It was a miscommunication, but um, I'm not sure if that if the evidence bears that out.
1: Yeah, one wonders I- if they would have said that were not for the help you got from FIRE, which, by the way, just for those that may not know, acronym for Foundation for Indi- Individual Rights and Education, they defend people like yourself in these situations. Right. Go, yep. go ahead, yeah. And,
3: and they defend all perspectives. I mean, because the whole point here is freedom of speech for everybody. Right. Uh, right. Not just for one view or another. It's not. They're not a conservative group or a liberal group. Um, but, but also what I mean is that if my viewpoint had been different, would I have gotten that same response?
1: Right. Right.
3: And so, so what I responded, what I said to the dean or the provost was, I appreciate the email saying it's a miscommunication and affirming my right to speak, but I do think that because I was specifically singled out, an apology makes sense. And to say, hey, we, we actually aren't singling out your viewpoint, we, we appreciate different viewpoints that you, and we're sorry about the hardships that put on you, because the truth is, Getting interrogated does put hardships on you Mm -hmm. that that others may not have to face if they have a different perspective. Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: Yeah. No, I mean, I I, I think it would be, well, we'll issue the invite if if there is in earshot or uh, someone knows of a liberal or left-leaning professor at ASU who has ever been told that they can no longer speak to the press or the public without uh, clearing it through the communications department. I'd love to know. I'm betting that that has never been communicated to them. That pretext yeah, of a yeah, chilling yeah. effect has never been issued. I'm, yeah. I I would bet dollars to donuts.
3: Yeah, that and that's really – that's exactly the phrase both Fire and I use is a chilling effect, mm-hmm. which is if you know that if you speak out, you're going to get questioned by your director of your school, is you might say it is not worth it. Who wants to put up with that? Correct. So Correct. I think you're right. That's what I mean by the evidence not bearing it out. Are other people with different, with maybe what are called far left leaning uh, ideologies, are they asked to speak to the media relations department first? My suspicion is no, and it wouldn't be too hard to look into because you could see who's been speaking to the media and then you could see if they've been asked those same things. So I, I think that I think that really what what happens is you have. Instances of viewpoint discrimination, of which means that, that the polls tell us university professors overwhelmingly lean pretty far left yes. in politics. Yep. And so for those of us who don't lean that way, I mean, you might just be at center, let mm-hmm. alone if you're a little bit on the conservative side. Yep. Uh, you You'll face a lot of subtle kinds of viewpoint discrimination.
1: Yep. Absolutely right. And, you know, this this is what you would call when you think about viewpoint discrimination. This is what you would call the opposite of education, which one would think is to expose students to a wide array of views. You're a philosophy professor. I don't know how one could teach philosophy. I mean, a PhD is inherently called a doctorate in philosophy. I don't know how you could have yeah. any higher education of any kind if it was based on viewpoint discrimination. But that is what we have now—a herd of independent minds uh, in our universities. Let me take this was a short segment. Let me let me take a quick break with you, Doctor Anderson, and come back because uh, you've been you started a Substack page. It's really interesting. And we want to get a kind of a sense of the progressivism that is taking place at schools like ASU. I will hand it to some of the leadership there for standing up for free speech. But nonetheless, the idea of uh, ASU being uh, a centrist college or even a uh, moderate uh, place of education, may be belied by some of the stuff you've been noticing. If you'll allow me the commercial break, Dr. Owen Anderson from Arizona State University, for whom he does not speak, I will reiterate, (laughs) and I will be right back. Well, welcome back to The Seth Liebson Show. Professor Owen Anderson is our guest. He is a professor at the School of Humanities and uh, Art and Cultural Studies at Arizona State University, author of any number of important books, a uh, commentary on Job, a book on the Declaration of Independence, a book on moral and natural law, and uh, an editor, actually, on uh, on, a, on an encyclopedia of uh, free speech. Professor Anderson, you know, people have this image of ASU as this place of moderacy, um, if not some sort of uh, academic-centeredness. Um, not, not exactly your experience, at least not from the perspective of, of the rest of your colleagues in the faculty. Uh, is, 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 am I right about that? I, am, I don't mean to lead yeah, the witness, yeah. so, but uh, this is what I've been divining <laughs> yeah, really. from your Substack pa- pa- uh, writings. Yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah, so my Substack is Dr. Owen Anderson or Dr. A's Substack, and uh, it, it, I started it, when these professors in the Barrett Honors College pushed back against having uh, Dennis Prager come out and yep. talk about how people can be happy. Right. And they thought that was some radical idea. So yeah. I thought, well, let's actually show what some, some of the talks that ASU gives yeah. uh, from the far-left radical side. And, and my experience is it's largely in the humanities. Mm-hmm. So I would suspect if you're in other programs, you may not encounter some of this uh, perspective or viewpoint discrimination. But in the humanities, I find it's overwhelmingly quite far-left. Um, and, and uh, so I've been posting about some of those things, and one of them that caught my, just, just kind of, I'm still kind of stunned by it, was at our last college faculty meeting. They, at the beginning of the meeting, they, they read this, this statement that's called a Native American Land acknowledgement. Okay. And, and a lot of the things it says, and there are, of course, they're very good, like, like ASU wants to support Native American students, okay. help, help them thrive, all that's great, but the whole idea is rooted in that, that ASU is on Native American lands, Dating to colonialism. Uh huh. And so, of course, that raises some questions then. I mean, why are we reading this before every college meeting? And do we all agree to that sentiment? But what stood out this time was before the, the person read it, they asked us to close our eyes.
2: Oh, and then after they read it, there was a
3: kind of a long pause, like a moment of silence. And I thought to myself, well, people need to pray, I think. And even secular people need to fit a prayer in somewhere. Yeah. And and here they are. They're telling us to close our eyes. Why are we closing our eyes before a, a Native American uh, land acknowledgement reading?
1: At a faculty so, meeting.
3: At a faculty meeting, right. yeah, that has that had no bearing on, on that issue, even. Business. Right. Yeah. yeah. And and no one no one's doing anything. It's just a way of kind of uh, feeling better, perhaps. It doesn't actually get anything done by reading the statement. And so this idea. I mean, uh, of course, you can imagine if I if I said, "Can I have a moment? I'd like you to close your eyes. I'm going to read the Lord's Prayer." Well, that,
1: that's say, exactly no, what I was going to ask you. What would have been the reaction if the you had said that. that? Yes, this is not yeah, the place for this that. Not the place for right, that. right.
3: So, so the idea is that w- this is the place to read about colonialism, which, which their particular view of colonialism, I may not agree with. And so, we don't even have unanimity in the in the college, because you know they might object to the Lord's Prayer and say, "Well, we don't all agree about that. Well, we don't all agree about this one." either.
1: You know, I I I, I started noticing this in my own college career when the faculty at my undergraduate school um, took a vote to object to a policy of the presidential administration at the time. I think, if, if memory serves, it was a vote to denounce the liberation of Kuwait in the first Gulf War. It was a, It was a vote to put the college on record to denounce the liberation of Kuwait. And I was uh, I was I was I was uh, for some reason a member of that faculty committee. I was, uh, I guess, the student representative to it or something like that. Yeah. And I remember standing up and not only was I in favor of liberating Kuwait in those days, but I just made the common point or what was maybe once a common point was that, you know, Aside from the fact that we have students here on the GI Bill, aside from the fact that we have students here that will be going off to fight in that war, it might be nice for the college to at least be neutral on what they're about to do rather than denounce them a priori. The idea that an entire institution can represent all the views diverse as they should or would be at a university— Reminded me of something Justice Robert Jackson said, which is that no official higher petty should prescribe what shall be orthodox in matters of politics, nationalism, religion, or other matters of opinion or force citizens to confess by words their faith therein. And this is a forced confession.
3: That's what the yeah. that is what
1: this is. It is a forced confession.
3: Well, you and I have talked before about how this view of Marxism really is a religion. Yeah. And so you and I talked about that a week ago, and then after that talk, I had this college meeting, and it was like, well, here, we talked about how it involves confession of sin, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. So colonialism is a sin that you right, have to confess, right. even though you, you weren't alive when that happened. Right. And then uh, it's really interesting because it's very similar to certain perspectives of original sin. That's right. right. That's right. So someone who represented you 500 years ago sinned, mm-hmm. and now that's on you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other one is now by by, by the way, oh, by dint I.
1: of your ethnicity and nothing else.
3: Yeah right. Not yeah. Right. I so, assume okay. if you so were a Native people American, people you accept. would
1: not be held responsible, or perhaps even a Pacific Islander or some other ethnic minority.
3: Yeah, when, yeah, and, and uh, people who object to the doctrine of original sin. All yeah. The oh, world, oh, there's that too. Right. 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 <laughs> right, right.
1: Right. Yeah. <laughs> Staring
0: me in the face here. Idea. Yeah.
3: Right. Right. Uh, right. Right. Um, but but then now now we've got prayer also. Yeah. And, and you pray by closing your eyes and reading a statement that makes you feel like you're you're doing the right thing, and. I'd like, to, I'd like to keep people updated on this sort of thing, which is why I have my sub-stack, and I invite your, your audience over to it, because there's also fascinating trolls yeah. that I attract.
1: Oh, good. My
3: favorite one recently told me, uh, if you don't like the fact that professors are left-wing, maybe you should leave the academy and go be a pastor. Mm. I thought to myself, wow, thank you for saying what I suspected, which is that Christians aren't welcome in the academy.
1: Yeah. If you're
3: a Christian, you really should leave. Just go be a pastor.
1: I remember the idea of love it or leave it used to be something that uh, the left hated, abjured, and thought was a mark of of playing games with fealty, loyalty, and basically the effect of a loyalty oath. This used to be the province of the left and the liberal, uh, at least the leftist in the liberal mindset. And uh, boy, look who the new tyrants are now. Love it or leave it. Yeah, and the the kind
3: of... Mm -hmm. Because my, one of my main areas of teaching is religion in America, and so of course we go over the fact that for some time some of the states had faith tests That's about right. being in public office.
1: Of course,
0: of course. And
3: so we, we've decided, of course, not you shouldn't have that to be in public office. Well, now here we are.
1: Yep. Well, Professor, we uh, we salute and uh, and honor and uh, and and thank you for standing up for for what we think true education is, and for what we think true liberal arts are and for joining us and keeping us updated on our flagship university's goings-on right here in my backyard. Thank you, sir, for everything you do. Substack, drowenanderson.substack.com. You You can follow him on Twitter as well. Thank you, sir. Keep it up. Your students are very lucky to have you as I am to have you as a friend and a guest. I am Seth Liebson. We will be right back. You've likely have been hearing me talk about YREFI for a while now, and if you still have some questions about what it means or what it could mean to invest with them, they ask you to give them a call, and they will happily put you in touch with any number of their many satisfied customers in the Phoenix area who have happily been investing with them and getting great returns. Their number is 888-YREFI-34, 34, 888-YREFI-34. 34. They'd like me also to ask you how your IRA is doing. Would you like your IRA to be earning strong fixed interest rates and not be dependent on the stock market or the Fed? Did you know you can invest with Y-Refi through an IRA or other qualified funds? And you can keep your investment, including the high fixed interest rates you earn, tax-deferred. That's right. Your money can stay in your IRA. You don't have to pay taxes on the income you earn. Check them out at investyrefi.com or 888-Y-REFI-34. There is kind of a... um. Kind of a unification of the two interviews I did this hour, first with John Tierney and then Owen Anderson, all having t- to come under the, the the rubric of censorship. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about censorship and shaming people for having dissident ideas, or really what the left told us their first and chief purpose was, which is the questioning of authority. What happens when you don't? What happens when you silent diss- silence dissent, particularly in what pro- you proclaim to be an enlightened or open society. Well, you get all these negative effects that John Tierney was talking about when it comes to politicalization of the science, and when it comes to the kinds of stuff Dr. Owen Anderson was talking about, a singular viewpoint that is acceptable in what claims to be a university or an academic or college environment, you miseducate the mind. You miseducate the mind of the very students you proclaim to be opening and enlightening. I uh, still agree and think a fine idea, my old friend and buddy John Roush's concept of putting a universal trigger warning in every freshman handbook of every college student that would read something like this. Quote, warning, although this university values and encourages civil expression and respectful personal behavior, you may at any moment and without further notice Encounter ideas, expressions, and images that are mistaken, upsetting, dangerous, prejudiced, insulting, or deeply offensive. We call this education. You know what else we call it? We call it America. We call it um, maturity. We call it not being a child in an adult's body. All right. Hugh Hallman coming in. We'll be right back.